Well, good morning and welcome to Regen. We are so glad to have you here. So the bad news is it kind of smells like sewage in here, so we're just gonna own it up front. The good news is we can have the doors open and like let some fresh air in. And Kyle said, if anybody has, we've been working on a solution, if anybody has a long-term solution, we would love to hear it. So we think it's maybe the sump pump? We're not sure. Anyway, if you have any suggestions you have. So, but good morning, welcome to Regen. If it's your first time here, we're so glad that you're here. Um, we'd invite you to take a gift in the back. Um, we have mugs. Um, if you're not already connected with us through our emails, fill out a hey card, you'll get our email. I'm a little offended because the last time Kyle made this announcement, four people signed up and the most I've ever gotten is two. So I'm just saying, we're in a competition. So if you haven't signed up for an email, go ahead and sign up back there. Yeah, no, you can't be a re-sign-up. You've got to be a new sign-up. And, uh, yeah, so, and then also Zach uh, Byler will be back at the table. So if you have any questions about any of our ministries going on, um, tonight Youth Circle is starting Youth Alpha. Um, so you can jump in on that. That's for students uh, grades 6 through 12. And then also we're in a new quarter. So um, our check-ins, if you use the hashtag RegenGives on your social media check-ins, they're going to go to Bella Women's Center for this quarter, so for the next three months. So if you want to check in and use that, we'd welcome you to do that as well. So I'm going to turn it over to Kyle, and we'll just keep going from there. The Banning Kids are handing out Easter invites. So uh, Easter is one of my favorite times. Uh, it's not on this invite, but next week is Palm Sunday, after which Rodeo the Donkey will be in the house. So we're excited about that. Um, and then Holy Week is what we call that week leading up to Easter. Our Good Friday service is at 7 p.m., Good Friday at 7 p.m., and then Easter Sunday at 11.15. So there'll be about 140-ish seats available, and then we'll just cram you into folding chairs after that. So um, there's that. I'm going to pass around the offering buckets, but just kind of to cast a vision and remind us of the generosity that Jesus invites us to live into. There's two ways that we give. Uh, one of them is structured, and one of them is spontaneous. So every once in a while, we're presented with a need, so we'll spontaneously meet that need. Uh, maybe sometimes you are walking in downtown Warren to Nova Coffee Company, and you are asked by somebody in a homeless situation for some money to do that. That's spontaneous giving. Structured giving. Structured giving is what we do every week. It's that regular, ongoing giving that we offer to the Lord, and that speaks to an issue of trust and control. So Steph and I give every week. Uh, we give a portion of our income, and that is with the assumption and trusting that God can do more with the 90% of our income than we could do with 100. So that's how that kind of looks like for us. So I'm going to pass these offering buckets around. And just to remind you that um, uh, I was at a district gathering as part of our connection to the United Methodist Church. We are leading the district in professions of faith. 17 people met Jesus last year through what we're doing here. And so that is far and away the highest number in our district right now, and that is because of what you give. It helps people connect to Jesus. And so let me pray. We're going to pass these buckets, and on we go. Jesus, we um, offer you what is already yours today, that which you've shared with us, as an act and a sign pointing to the fact that we want to give you all of who we are. And so, Jesus, um, thank you so much that we get to participate in your kingdom in this way, that we get to be partners in your purposes, even as we're people of your presence, and invite others into the same. Uh, and so receive this, multiply it for your use in your kingdom as we are servants of it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If you are in a season of doubting, the fact that God's promises are yes and amen feels a little strange to you. And that's okay. So we rest in his promises. From where we are to a yes and amen, we rest in the promise. So let's pray. God, we bring you our rest. Actually, wrong. We bring you our restlessness. We bring you our restlessness in our waiting and in our doubting. We are so thankful that even in the midst of our waiting and doubting, that you offer us an invitation. But those are an invitation into knowing you more deeply. So help us to know you today. We pray pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Okay, so the kids are going back with Miss Kayla, but it's really fun. So there's new Bibles back there. We got new Bibles for our kids' ministry, so they're having a pizza party with new Bibles. Right? Yeah, Bibles for the pizza. <laughs> Greasy fingers and there went that. It was super funny. Um, so Kayla said, we're going to get new Bibles, and we're going to have a party. And the kids said, we're going to have a pizza party, which was not the promise. <laughs> so the kids, the kids got her. That was cool. Um, okay, so we're going to be in John chapter 20, slash all over the place. Um, John chapter 20. Continuing in this series on faith and doubt. If you're just joining us, Let me tell you a little about where we've been. We've been exploring the connection between faith and doubt in this series. Uh, Frederick Buechner reminds us that doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is what keeps faith alive and moving. By the way, there's young Dan rocking the soundboard today. Dan, I'll just tell you when I need the next slide, okay? Okay, cool beans. Frederick Buechner says that doubt is what keeps faith alive and moving. And what we've seen through scripture is that doubt is not the absence of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Instead, doubts are invitations to go deeper. They are invitations to pursue God with more intensity and more passion and with more curiosity. And all of this is true because faith is not defined by psychological certainty. Faith is not about hyping myself up to a level of assuredness or certainty about anything. It's it's not about that. That's good news because when I lack certainty, and I often do, that means that I am not faithless. It means that I'm not sinning. Instead, when God does something surprising or upsetting, which as you walk with God, he is going to do repeatedly. He exists beyond our comprehension. He's his own person. When God does something surprising or upsetting, I'm not being faithless when I ask questions. In fact, I'm being faithful. As we go through our lives, there's two kinds of doubt. Dan, can you hit the next one for me? There is stomach doubt and there is head doubt. And stomach doubt is what we've talked about for the last two weeks as we've looked at lament in the Psalms and Habakkuk. Stomach doubt is when we have these experiences that that cause us to call into question God's character and God's promises. When somebody you love receives a cancer diagnosis, when bad things happen to you, it calls into questions God's character, God's promises. And so 
We are invited in stomach doubt to wrestle with God, to lament, to plead with him, and, and the process, further embrace him. That's what we looked at last week. But then we have these moments of head doubt. We find ourselves asking questions, or we may be asked these questions. These big questions that get stuck in our craw. Questions like we looked at last week. How can an all-loving and all-powerful God allow evil to exist in the world? There are others. There are other questions. How can we be sure that Jesus is the only way to heaven? How are we sure that he is the only way, not one of many ways? How do we know that the Bible is reliable and accurate? Did God really create the world in six 24-hour periods? Were Adam and Eve real people? What is the connection between predestination and free will? When we ask these questions out loud, sometimes we feel like we are being bad followers of Jesus, that we are in the wrong, and I'm trying to correct that in this series. We are not being faithless. We are being faithful when we wrestle with truth. When we ask those questions in communities, some of us, some of us have been ostracized or shamed or criticized for asking what is a fair questions. Uh, Last night, Aaron and I went to Modern Methods. Uh, It's a brewery downtown. And I end up in this conversation with a couple in their 60s um, who are ex-Catholic. And what about guilt? And what about purgatory? Uh, And what is the difference between Christianity and Catholicism? Really, the question is, what is the difference between Protestantism and Catholicism? They had bad church experiences because they asked questions and were shamed. The one woman was like beat by the nuns in her school, right, for asking questions. This is what we're talking about. What helps us answer these questions that we are asking, what helps us answer the questions that others ask us is a practice that Anselm of Canterbury calls faith-seeking understanding, which is what I want to talk about today, faith-seeking understanding, that the way through our doubts of the head And the way to help others in mission and evangelism is by practicing faith-seeking understanding. That faith-seeking understanding is a critical practice for our personal discipleship and living as missionaries to our friends and our family and our neighbors and our culture. So with that, let's look at John chapter 20. John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. This is after the first Easter. Jesus has been alive for a little while. It says, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, hey, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, unless I place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them, and although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put, your, put it in your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Have you ever met somebody or called somebody a doubting Thomas? Anybody? We usually call people that are cynical or skeptical, we call them doubting Thomases. We get that little name, that little nickname from right here in John chapter 20, as Thomas, one of Jesus' 12, refuses to believe that Jesus is alive until he can personally put his fingers in the wounds in Jesus' hands and the wounds in Jesus' side. He won't believe that Jesus is risen until then. But what's interesting to me about John chapter 20, if you read that text, 
Nowhere in the entire text does it use the word doubt. We call people doubting Thomases because we read this passage and go, oh, Thomas doubted. But nowhere in the passage does it use the word doubt. Instead, it uses words like believe and disbelieve, which is really important because New Testament scholars will tell you that the way that you and I use the word believe, a.k.a. I believe there is a Bigfoot. I do not believe that there is a Bigfoot. Here's something just as preposterous. I believe the Browns can win one game this season. I know sports. The way that we use the word believe in our society kind of speaks to certainty about facts, but the Bible uses the word believe in a more relational way. It could better be translated trust. So what is at stake here for Thomas isn't his certainty, but his trust. Those are two different things, and that's really important because we could look at Thomas in John chapter 20 and say, well, Thomas lacks psychological certainty. Thomas lacks psychological certainty that Jesus can keep his promises and rise from the dead. But what is at stake for Thomas uh, isn't his certainty, but his trust. And for his trust to increase, Thomas asks for evidence. And just like that, Jesus appears in the middle of the room where Thomas is asking for evidence. And, Thomas, and he says to Thomas, you know what, Thomas? It's faith, man. It's going to be a mystery, dude. Like, you just got to believe. How dare you ask questions, you sinner? He doesn't say any of those things. He appears in the middle of the room. Joey, would you stand up? You're brave. He appears in the middle of the room. He says, he says, It's very intimate. This is why all of you don't sit in the front row. Do you notice? (laughs) It's very intimate that Thomas, when he asks for evidence, Jesus gives it to him. And faced by this evidence, Thomas comes to trust in Jesus more. George MacDonald says, a man, this is on the next one, Dan. He says, a man may be haunted with doubts and only grow thereby in faith. He says, doubts are the messengers of the living one to the honest. They are the first knock at our door of the things that are not yet but have to be understood. When Thomas doubts that Jesus is alive, that is the first knock on his door, that there is something he's got to understand he just doesn't understand yet. Thomas's doubts, and I think it's fair to read doubt in this passage because it's there, but Thomas's doubts, do you notice this? It causes Jesus to step toward him, not away. And when we express doubt in community, oftentimes we step back like somebody might have the cooties. Oh, like, he, like, he might be an evolutionist. We need to, like, get away from him. We need to get the kids out of that Sunday school class. We need to make sure that they don't. Meanwhile, doubts cause Jesus to take a step closer to Thomas because doubts are a messenger to Thomas, inviting Thomas deeper. Thomas's questions and doubts, are, they're the first knock at his door of something that he doesn't understand yet, but he's got to. This, this idea, this journey of, Something that we have to understand but do not get is exactly what Ansel means when he talks about faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding. You can look at that next one, Dan. Faith-seeking understanding. Anselm lived in the 11th century. Um, and believe it or not, Anselm is largely responsible for a lot of the way that you read the Bible. So Anselm was the first person to really write very clearly about how Scripture paints this picture 
that Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath and sets us free. He was the first person to say there was something inherent in the character and person of Jesus, some merit inside of him that made his death able to satisfy a penalty that we owed God. Nobody had ever really talked about that super clearly out loud before. It was always there in Scripture. He was just the first person. And he has this Latin phrase that I can't pronounce, but translators tell me it means faith-seeking understanding. And it's this practice of faith-seeking understanding that helps us move into what we don't yet but must understand. It's faith-seeking understanding that Thomas demonstrates. It's faith-seeking understanding that helps us through our doubts of the head, and it helps us engage with people far from Jesus when they ask us questions. Now, I want to be clear about something. Faith-seeking understanding does not mean faith lacks understanding and needs to be taught it. It is not like kind of how Christianity is portrayed in the news or like in common culture that like faith is stupid and is in need of education. Faith-seeking faith understanding puts into practice the words of Proverbs, an Old Testament book. It says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom and incline your ear to understanding. It says, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Faith-seeking understanding has to do with faithfully learning and growing in wisdom. It puts into action the words of, say, 2 Peter 1.5, which says that we are to supplement our faith with virtue and our virtue with knowledge. Faith-seeking understanding is exactly what Paul prays in Philippians 1. Go to this next one for me, Dan. Paul prays that our love would overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding because he wants us to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ. Continued growth in knowledge and understanding, continued growth in wisdom is exactly what faith-seeking understanding means. And when we are faced with questions about our faith, and they can be questions we ourselves are asking or we are being asked while we're just trying to have a beer with Aaron at Modern Methods. These are the questions that faith-seeking understanding helps us answer those questions, to respond to those doubts, to enter into a world where we understand something that we just don't yet. Faith-seeking understanding, it's a helpful practice, both to us personally as we follow Jesus and as we practice as missionaries. In terms of our personal discipleship, another way to think of faith-seeking understanding is what Jesus means when he says to love the Lord our God with all our minds. Look at this next one. This is what Jesus calls the greatest commandment. He says all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament can be summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You're to take all of that love and leverage it for the sake of someone else. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Yes, Bert Bacharach, it's true. But it needs love upheld by and enclosed by and expressed in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. When I was first working through this sermon, I was tempted, this was my first attempt at a one-liner summary, which there's always like five one-liner summaries for the whole sermon, so sorry about that. But I wrote down, the world doesn't need more lukewarm cultural Christians. It needs desperately smarter disciples. But then I was reminded that the people that Jesus set loose into ministry were not smart. Acts 4.13 says that that when the religious leaders of the day saw Peter and John's boldness, this is in Acts 4.13, it says they perceived that they were common, uneducated men, but they could tell they had been with Jesus. 
So we don't need to be smart. If you're taking notes, please write down, Kyle isn't asking me to be smart. He is asking me to be teachable. The world doesn't need more lukewarm cultural Christians. It desperately needs disciples who are teachable, who are willing to learn and to seek wisdom, and who desire to love the Lord their God with all their minds. And this is what faith-seeking understanding is. It's growing in wisdom and understanding and being teachable and being flexible. It's vital not only to our personal discipleship, and I'm going to frame on how do we act on that in a little while, but it's also valuable as we work as missionaries in our culture. So if you've got a Bible, flip to 1 Peter chapter 3, which you're going to go to the right. It's going to be Hebrews, the book of James, then 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. We, as a church, we are trying to be missionaries. So what we're trying to create is a missionary movement, okay? So if you come to a circle, which start again next fall, we're going to be helping you press into the missionary lifestyle of Jesus. Those who lead circles are like even pressed further into that missionary lifestyle of Jesus. See, that's where we're trying to kind of shape our community. Uh, an author of a book named Harry Blameyers has this quote, and I think I have that, Dan. He says, the bland assumption that the church's life will continue to be fruitful as long as we go on praying and cultivating our souls, irrespective of whether we trouble to think and talk Christianly and therefore theologically about anything we or others may do or say, it may turn out to have dire results. Read that again because it's an important quote. It's kind of wordy. The bland assumption that the church's life will continue to be fruitful so long as we go on praying and cultivating our souls, irrespective of whether we trouble to think and talk Christianly and therefore, theologically, about anything we, other, we or others may do or say, it may turn out to have dire results. Would anybody like to guess when Harry Blameyers wrote that down? Okay, you're quiet. No. He wrote that in 1963. He wrote that 56 years ago. 56 years ago, he said, if we do not nurture, not just our souls, but if we do not nurture our minds, if we do not learn to think and talk theologically and Christianly about what's going on in our culture, it'll have dire results. It's not just, had, he was right, it's not just had dire results in the church, it's had disastrous results in the church. The church has been in decline since the time that he wrote this down. Like the church in the United States has been in steady decline, and that decline has increased in the last 10 years. It is why we needed to say out loud, we're going to start a church for unchurched and dechurched young people because people 35 and under are fleeing church as fast as they can, like rats off a sinking ship. And it is because we have failed to cultivate a Christian mind, in part. I, I have conversations with people all the time, and they kind of shake their heads and say, why aren't young people in church anymore? And it's partially because we keep ask, answering questions that nobody is asking. It's also partly because... And, and this is true of you, nobody cares what church you attend. Nobody cares what church you attend. Nobody cares how long you've been here. Nobody cares what roles or responsibilities you have here. Your roles, your responsibilities, your participation in the life of our church to people outside of the church world is equivalent to them being in the Rotary Club. What matters to people what is truly transformative to people is when they encounter imperfect but authentic disciples. That's what changes people. They don't really have a desire to meet a Christian. They don't have a desire to meet a church member. I mean, talk to anybody who works in a restaurant after church on Sundays, and they will tell you that church people are the worst. 
They are. I worked at Panera in high school. Um, and on Sunday afternoons, it was rough. People, we don't need more church members. We need to be people who are f- practicing faith, seeking understanding for the sake of our culture, for the sake of being missionaries in our culture. This is why Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Okay, we'll stop there. <laughs> this is where the gospel gets super messed up. He said, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Oh, wow. Peter is writing to a church that is being persecuted. Okay? No, we are not being persecuted in the U.S. I'm sorry to tell you, we're not. Unless you or your children have been jailed this week for coming to church, we are not being persecuted. Unless you are at all afraid for your life coming here, you're not being persecuted. Being treated weird in our culture is Christianity no longer being a favorite in our culture. It is just us being treated like everybody else. We are now actually experiencing equality instead of favoritism. Peter's writing to this church where they're really suffering. But he says, by the way, you're going to be blessed. And in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your friends being dragged out of their home at night and killed in the Colosseum in Rome, he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Oh, okay. But have in your hearts, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, I thought I could be a jerk. I was wrong. Gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Let me also, let me also set up this category, because I think a Christian way out from being missionaries, like a Christian get-out-of-jail-free card, is when we say, you know, I don't really have the gift of evangelism, and I'm not very comfortable with talking to people about my faith, but I know that if I just live a good life, people will ask me questions about it. And they say, look, 1 Peter 1, or 1 Peter 3 says they'll do that. It's not 1 Peter 1, it's 1 Peter 3, by the way. Here's the problem. Peter says that people will ask us about the hope that is in us, not as we live bland American lives, but as we are actively being persecuted. So unless you are actively being persecuted, you're not really going to get asked a lot of questions. You'll get asked some. You'll be asked some questions if you're authentically living as a disciple, but here's the reality. We all have this idea of the St. Francis of Assisi quote, like, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. It is always necessary to use words. Just is. And that's why Peter says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. Be prepared to make a defense. That make a defense word comes from apologia, the Greek word apologia, and that is where we get a Christian discipline called apologetics. If you would like to go down the rabbit hole on apologetics, Zach Byler, he'll just take you right there. YouTube video after YouTube video. Apologetics is like the practice of defending the Christian faith. And that's like what, I could actually post it to some of you. Tim Keller spoke at um, the prayer breakfast for the Houses of Parliament uh, last spring. Did an amazing job of def- like articulating what good is Christianity in a secular society. That is the work of apologetics. Um, apologists were like C.S. Lewis and Ravi Zacharias and William Lane Craig, uh, Josh McDowell, or if you're under 30, Josh McDowell Jr., right? So he, he and his son are doing the same thing. Apologetics is a really useful discipline. I'll give you a couple books on this later. Apologetics is a really interesting discipline 
because it helps you personally understand the factfulness and reliability of your faith, and it is. It's really interesting. It's historically and philosophically valid. So I find that people read apologetics books, get like super jazzed up to know like that this is like true and real. But the second thing, the reason that we want to engage in apologetics and kind of read some of these books and start thinking this way and practice faith-seeking understanding is as you follow Jesus, you're just going to get asked questions about what's going on in your life, about why you live in the way that you live. It's just going to happen. You're going to be out for a drink and end up kind of having this conversation with this person. And this is happening all the time in our community because I get panicked text messages from like under tables. Like so-and-so is asking me this question and I don't have an answer for them. And my favorite thing to do, and in fact it has become my practice, has been to not answer those texts. Partially because I like to see you sweat just a little bit, just a little bit. But also partially because that is an important moment for you to grow in trust of Jesus, who by the Holy Spirit is going to give you words to say. And if I just give you words to parrot, you're not developing that kind of conversational relationship with Jesus. Jesus says that when you're placed in front of men and women and they ask you questions, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to tell you what to say. So I kind of just like to let it happen and then kind of do like a post-game review, you know, Text you the next morning, it'll probably say, oh, sorry, I didn't see this till later. I probably saw it and just ignored it. Um, I'm sorry I didn't see this till later. How did it go? We want to be people that know these answers. And here's why. Tim Keller, who I just mentioned, wrote an article recently, and he made the point that sharing our faith with people is harder today than it was 30 years ago. Like, if you're over 40, like, you remember a world of America and a world of church that those of us under 40 have, are not in touch with at all. We're just not. I mean, our culture has changed incredibly fast in the 30 years I've been alive and in the last 40 generally. And, and so it makes it harder. It makes it harder to point people to Jesus. It makes it harder to have these questions to answer these questions, but when we practice faith-seeking understanding and we develop some answers to those, we're more effective missionaries. That's why, again, we don't need more lukewarm Christians. We don't need more cultural Christians. What we need are disciples who want to love the Lord their God with all their mind as a personal discipleship and as missionaries. And as missionaries. When we are faced with big questions of our faith, either the ones that we have or the ones that we're asked, the practice of faith-seeking understanding is how we navigate through those questions. It's how we navigate through those questions. It's why, for me, I have spent a lot of time in the last six months reading about six-day, 24-hour literal creation. This is why it keeps coming up. And then theistic evolution. Because I have some legit questions about what does the Bible mean when it talks about how the, Bible, the world was created and all these kinds of things. And I'm just trying to read and I'm practicing faith seeking understanding. And the thing I really want to make clear is I'm not calling you to be smart. I'm not saying go and get degrees. What I'm saying is be more teachable, and here's why. The reason I study so much for teaching in our church, the reason I prepare so much, the reason I read so many books, is that the more you study scripture, the more you follow Jesus, you actually come into touch, come into touch with how little you actually know. The growth of knowledge that I have on a weekly basis is simply adding more things to the list of I do not understand, right? So it's not about if you just had enough smarts, you could figure all this out. It is about engaging in a journey of curiosity 
with Jesus. It's about practicing faith-seeking understanding. It's about loving the Lord your God with all your mind. Okay, one last passage, Matthew 18. So flip back to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And depending on your personality, if you were to ask that question, you would be saying, please let it be me. 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 Or you might be saying, please not that person. Please not that person. Please not that person. Not not me, but not them either, right? Just depends on who you are. Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Today I'm kind of making this argument for being learners to being teachable as a way to navigate our doubts of the head. I think a lot of us walk away, I see a lot of people walk away from their faith when they experience a doubt of the head and they don't even try to press into it. I'm just trying to get us to be a community that presses into those things a little bit. I'm making this argument for faith-seeking understanding, for loving the Lord your God with all your mind. In the back of the room, there is somebody that's saying, listen, faith like a child Faith like a child. Bible says it. I, I, don't, I don't need to be smart. I don't need to gain understanding. Faith like a child. I, I, I can just love people. Faith like a child. Kyle, there was always this kid in my classes at Moody and in the systematic theology classes I've taken since then that, like, as we're exploring these topics of, like, predestination versus free will, like, 20 rounds to the death, like, who's going to win, right? There's always some kid in the back that's like, faith like a child. Jesus just says, faith like a child. And here's the problem with that. People who insist on having faith like a child, people who insist on not growing and learning, engaging in that, they always end up believing and behaving childishly. If faith like a child is what you're attaining to, and that means I never have to learn, I never have to grow, I can just be simple, I can just be me, you're going to believe and behave childishly. But notice... Notice what Jesus is actually saying in this text. Jesus is not saying, don't learn about things. Jesus is pointing to the humility of the child. Jesus is not asking you to be smarter. He's asking you to be more humble, more teachable, and I would say more curious. Because if you've ever noticed about children, how curious they are. I, I will have an advantage that, like, Harry and Kathy did not have as they were parenting Mike and Caitlin. Because when they asked, like, why is the sky blue? They had to, like, go, like, buy an encyclopedia or, like, go to the library. Like, I can just Google on my phone, why is the sky blue? So, kid says, why is the sky blue? Okay, well, it's because of, I, I, I'm going to guess at this. I think this, it, something about the light ref, reflecting off the ozone and something like that, da, 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 da. And so you tell your kids this answer, and you're thinking, <laughs> I answered that one. And your, kids, and your kids go, why? I was a youth pastor, right? So, like, kids would ask me, like, a Bible question, like, what does it mean that, like, Jesus, like, what does it mean, da-da-da-da-da? Well, da-da-da, here's your answer. Why? Okay, well, well, why? Da-da-da-da. And then, like, three hours later, it's one in the morning on this youth retreat, and I just want to punch every kid in the youth group. Like, <laughs> but there's this curiosity that is, that is inherent in children, 
And that curiosity in them does not violate their trust. It actually is a sign of their trust. So have you never, like, your kids ask you why a million times because they trust you, not because they don't trust you. But with God, we flipped that on its head and said, like, we, we flipped that on its head and said, like, oh, when I ask God why a million times, it's actually me not being trusting. What Jesus is inviting us to be in, and here's where I'm kind of trying to get us as we start to wrap up this series, is Jesus is inviting us into holy curiosity and to curious community. Holy curiosity and curious community. We want to practice faith-seeking understanding. We want to have humility. We want to love the Lord our God with all our minds. We want to make a defense for our faith with gentleness and respect and a clear conscience. And all of that means having a holy curiosity to learn and grow and understand more. To learn and grow and understand more and to put myself in context and around content that help me learn and grow more. And and let me add this. You need both context and content in order to grow in understanding. And here's why. This couple that I'm sitting with last night loves listening to this super intense Bible teacher named R.C. Sproul. Dude's mega intense, okay? R.C. Sproul's considered one of the top Bible teachers in America. I mean, but then the guy asked me, what's the difference between Lutheran and Presbyterian? And I'm thinking, so you have all of this content at your fingertips, I'm not calling him stupid. I'm just saying, how can you be listening to R.C. Sproul all the time and not answer? This is a question that R.C. Sproul would be like, (laughs) right? So we need content and context, right? So we need to be people. I, I love listening to podcasts. We have a lot of learners in our community. I think that's great. But we need context in which we explore that thing together. It gives that boundaries. That's why we need both holy curiosity, like pursuit of content, and and context, we need curious communities. We need places that we can come back and start asking questions and engage with that. And when you when you lack one or the other, especially when you pursue content without context, when you pursue like knowledge without community, that's how you get crazy people. That's how you get crazy people. I mean, that's how you get. I'm thinking of something specific, but it's in our community, so I'm going to, not our community, but like out there, I don't want to do it. But that's where you get like weird late night TV preachers. That's where you get like those weird people on YouTube because they're offering content without context, right? So we need both of those things. We need holy curiosity and we need holy, and we need curious community. So here are a few thoughts of how to do that. Be, this is why we have circles, right? It's to put you in a context that is a safe place to explore your faith. Those are going to come back next September. Um, in between now and then, we're going to be doing some prayer nights. We're going to be doing feasts. It's going to be a good time. Um, pursue context for your, for your curiosity. That's important. And then a couple things. One, get into the Bible, okay? We are, a, in so many ways, like the Bible is so at the center of what we do. Get into Scripture. Be reading it personally. That, that is so important. And to keep reading it and to be engaging with it. But the other thing is, and, and I want to say this, if you're at the beginning of your faith, we have these little things called devotionals, right? Like short paragraphs. I read them. I engage with them, that kind of stuff. I, I, that's really great. But some of you are ready to ditch the training wheels and move on from the devotional and just study the Bible. I'm not saying don't do devotions, like whatever you call your time with God on a regular basis. But I'm saying, like, if you're at the beginning, I've got some great devotionals that are, like, a good spiritual vitamin to get you started. But I talk to a lot of Christians who, like, are a long time ready to move from milk to meat who are still riding the devotional train. It's time to ditch the devotional and get in Scripture. Buy, buy a study Bible and go for it. Okay? 
And then the most miraculous, John Piper says this, the, one of the most miraculous things that happens in a person's life is when they start reading books. Start reading books. So here's a couple that I would recommend. Um, we sent out like some recommended reading for this series. Those would be good too, but uh, Sky Jathani's With, if you've not read that book, like fabulous summer read. The Reason for God by my guy Tim Keller, awesome. Got a couple people in our community reading that. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Um, Mere Christianity are a series of radio talks. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, Byler, but they were a series of radio talks given like right around World War II, right? So there's C.S. Lewis on the radio talking to a Briton that is in moral crisis about faith. Really interesting. Um, finally, ask me questions about the Bible. I'd love when that happens. Be prepared to wait a minute. But like, here's what I love about being a pastor. Kyle, I've got like this spiritual thing I need to talk to. Kyle, like, I've got this question about the Bible. Here's what I don't love being a pastor. Like, weird, like, church dynamics. Who made that decision? Why are we, which we don't do that, a lot of that here, which is really good. But like, I love having coffee and beers with people who want to talk about questions about their faith. I'm just saying. Um, okay, let me say this. The world doesn't need more lukewarm cultural Christians. It needs disciples. It needs teachable, wisdom-seeking, understanding-seeking, love the Lord your God with your whole mind, disciples. That's what it needs. It needs that faith-seeking understanding is the way that we move through our doubts of the head. Let me pray. Jesus, you um, are so faithful to walk with us and in us in the midst of our doubts. And you want us to have hearts that are totally on fire with passion for you. You also want us to have minds that are bright and active and engaging with you in that way. You want us to have bodies that are submitted to your lordship. Hands that are quick to serve, feet that are quick to move toward those who are hurting. You want lordship over all of us. And so, God, we offer you our hearts, we offer you our souls, we offer you our strength, we offer you our mind. We offer ourselves to you fully. So before I forget, Alex and Taylor are here with their daughter, Ava. So welcome to Regen, Ava. We love you. Jesus said, in their midst and said, unless you become humble like one of these, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So may you, with humility, practice faith-seeking understanding this week. Uh, and for all the things that we do know and all the things that we don't know, I love you. You're not listening to a word I'm saying. We'll see you next week. Peace.